Our passage this morning is Exodus 32. If you have your Bibles, you can take them out and turn to Exodus 32. This morning we're going to read uh, not the whole chapter as we printed it in the bulletin. We're actually going to read verses 1 through 14 and then we will make reference to the rest of the chapter as we go along. You'll catch on as we do so. Good to see you again. It's been a while since we've been together. Thank you for allowing my family and me to get away and to rest, and thank you to Colin and Aaron and Chad for filling in while we were away. Someone at Presbytery this weekend said, man, you guys have a lot of preachers to call on. You have a lot of depth at New St. Peter's. They were envying what the Lord has given to you in the right way, so you can be thankful for that as you go home. I go on vacation, and I don't worry about a thing. I'm, I'm not kidding. I don't even call in to check. They've got it covered, so thank you to those three men and faithful servants. Let me tell you where we're going this fall. After The first Sunday after Labor Day, we're going to start a series in Hosea. So we'll go from that Sunday to the first Sunday in December in the minor prophet Hosea. Now, Hosea can be an overwhelming book if you just dive into it, so we're not going to do that. We're going to spend two weeks of prep work. And we're going to look at two passages that aren't directly linked to Hosea. And I'm not even going to tell you how they're connected. I'm not going to make it obvious. My hope is that as we go through these two passages, they'll sort of quietly prepare us for what we're going to encounter in Hosea. They will uh, almost imperceptibly prime the pumps of our hearts for what's coming in Hosea's prophecy. Little Christians... Young theologians, this morning as we read the story about the golden calf, probably a story you've heard about before, I want you to see if you can answer this question. Why do we make idols? And then this one's harder, but you have to answer this one too. What's your idol? What do you love more than you love Jesus, if you are honest? Sometimes there are things that we put ahead of Jesus. What's that thing for you? This is... Believe it or not, the gospel of the golden calf from the book of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and they said to him, Up and make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. And he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff 
stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I'll give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Pray with me. We ask one thing of you, O Lord our God, that you would make our time together this morning like that routine eye exam where we come together and we think that we can see just fine, but there's something blocking our sight, something terribly wrong in the way, and we ask you to uncover it for us, reveal it to us, allow us to see ourselves more truly and honestly possibly we had even hoped to do when we came this morning. More than that, help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to see his beauty and his power and his wonder and his might. We need that much more. So grant to us both of these pieces, a clear view of ourselves and a clear view of the Savior. Change us by it all, we ask in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, here is the story of a people who love to make idols and a God who hates the idols that his people make for themselves. This is the story of a people very bad at love and the story of a God who is very good at it. It is unloving. It's the height of unloving to make idols. And it is loving, the height of loving, for God to forbid idols. That's the first commandment. And Moses was just about to bring it down the mountain on this occasion to read it out to the people. You shall have no other gods before me. You will not replace me. You won't need any other gods. Too late. Already done. By the time Moses makes it down the mountain, the golden calf has been made. The people complained to Aaron... And Aaron agreed, and he collected their earrings and their gold baubles, and he melted them down, and he made a new God. And then, and then, the people rewrote Israel's short history. It was a cold, shrewd piece of editing. The people pointed at the golden calf, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
perhaps, at least in part, they were saying, these are your gods. They were using the plural to leave room for more gods to be added to the story. And then Aaron the priest joined in and he reworked Yahweh's worship. He took the worship that the true God had given to his people and Aaron gave it to the calf in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, when he saw the people responding to the statue, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He even gave the calf God's name. This is the Lord. He gave to the calf God's covenant identity. His promise to make this people his own and to love them and to keep them no matter what. Aaron gave the covenant to the calf. And verse 6 says... And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And they rose up to play, to worship before the idol. It all seems so stupid, doesn't it? Why in the world would they do this? Well, the text says it was because Moses went up the mountain to meet with God and he hadn't come back. He was gone too long. God had killed him or God had eaten him. You can imagine how the people speculated. And when they looked up the mountain, it was right there. They were camped at the foot of the mountain. They could look up to the summit. And when they did, they saw the presence of Moses' God. And the top of the mountain was covered in cloud and smoke and flame. So the God Aaron made for them was the opposite of that. He made them a calf. I was on a friend's ranch earlier in the summer. It's a big working ranch. As we drove onto the property, I had to get out of the car and open gates. And then we would drive through the gate and I would have to close the gate behind and get in the car and drive up to the next gate. We had to do this three or four times. And every time we went through these gymnastics, the car would stop at the gate, and I'd get out and walk up to the gate and open it, and the car would pull through. I'd close the gate and get back in. Every time we did this, I had to walk through a herd of cattle. Bulls and cows and calves, animals with weight and mass and muscle. And no threat. No danger. I walked past them. I walked through them. And sometimes as I approached, they even moved away. These massive creatures, they were nervous and they moved. At the most, they just stood there and stared at me with those big blank eyes. They were docile and stupid. And that's what the people wanted in a God and Aaron knew it. A God unfrightening. A God unthreatening, a God undangerous, a God they could tame, maybe control, a God they could lead like a calf, a God that wouldn't demand anything of them, but a God who couldn't save them either. And here's what we learn about our idolatry. We all have idols. 
Our idolatry is turning our hearts away from God. Not because he isn't there. In this passage, he's just up the mountain. You can look from the camp and see him. It's not that he isn't there. It's that he's not to our liking. The God who is is not the God we want. So much like Israel, we rewrite our history and we rework worship and we have our own version of the commandments that Moses brought down the mountain and we say, you shall not be the only God before us because you're not the God we want. We have a whole pantheon of stand-in gods, gods that we're convinced will love us more and care for us better, gods that will feed our appetites but not our needs, our stomachs but not our hearts, gods of success or reputation or being thought of in a certain way, gods of family and perfection and self-righteousness and control, gods of food and money and drink and sex, gods of sports teams, gods of musicians, gods of being in the in crowd. We make a god of belonging to the right church, supporting the right politicians and candidates, gods of celebrity, gods of fame. Nothing is off limits. We have an inexhaustible capacity to turn anything, anything into a god, and we do. Idolatry is our surprising dissatisfaction with God. Now, in response to all this idol-making, in response to all his people's efforts to reimagine him and to reconfigure him and to reshape him, do you know what God does? He stays gloriously the same, maddeningly, frustratingly, stubbornly, beautifully, magnificently the same. He doesn't bend, and he doesn't change, and he doesn't give in to our demands and our tantrums. He remains true to his character. He remains the God he's always been. But I don't want you to be confused by this. He's not passive, and he's not inactive here. This is his response to our idolatry. He is surprisingly dissatisfied with our idolatry. And he shows his dissatisfaction by being the visiting God. That's what he calls himself in verse 34. Now, the visit he speaks of in verse 34 is a visit of judgment, but that's not really what he wants for his people. Still in verse 34, he calls himself the visiting God. This is the God who wants to live with his people. He's the God who's intent on closeness. He wants closeness by living with his people in the promised land. And even after this horrible insult against his divinity and his uniqueness, he doesn't abandon his people and leave them to die in the desert. And surprisingly, he says to Moses, we're still going to the land of promise. And my angel will go ahead of you. But even that isn't close enough. So he visits them by dwelling in the tabernacle. He puts his presence in the camp and lives in a tent with them. And then he moves to the even more permanent but not fully permanent structure of the temple. 
But even that's not close enough. So he visits us in our flesh. Godliness comes into our flesh in the birth of Jesus. But even that's not close enough. And there's a glimmer of just how close this God wants to get to us in Moses carrying the law down the mountain. He wants to give his heart to his people. Something stands in the way. We trade his heart for our idols. So, he shows his dissatisfaction, not just by being the visiting God, but by making himself the blotting out God. In verse 33, But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. You understand that phrase, to be blotted out, to be erased, smeared, removed from the page. Your name can be spoken no more. You're not even remembered any longer. Years ago when we started New St. Peter's, we were working our way through the book of Esther. And we, we tried to read through the book at home in our families in an unusual way. We adopted the traditional Jewish practice of reading the story. So we actually encouraged families to go out into the backyard, onto the back patio, while they were reading through the book of Esther. And the practice was to write the name of the villain of the story, Haman, in chalk. And any time Haman's name was read in the story, everybody was to get up out of their seats and walk over and try to scuff his name out. It was violent, and it's supposed to be. That's what blotting out is. The problem is the way it's spoken of here. Whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. That's everybody. That's that's us. No one will be left. But he hasn't done that. He hasn't emptied his book. And earlier in the passage, God burns with anger. And he says to Moses in verse 9, I've seen this people And behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them and start all over. I'm going to make a brand new people starting with just you, Moses. But down in verse 14 we're told the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Of course. Verse 34 is postponed For 2,000 years, until one Friday, just before noon, Jesus carries a cross up a hill. And he's sprawled out on it and nailed to it, and the cross is hoisted up. And on that day, Jesus makes the promised visit, but he also makes himself the promised blotting out. Nailed to the cross, Jesus is shut out of the heart of God, like one who said, Aaron, forget this God, make a new one, make a gold calf. Jesus is erased from life on the cross, like one who sacrificed and feasted and bowed down and got up and danced to the empty statue. Jesus was removed and crossed out from God's love, hanging there, and your names, who believe in him, who rely on his sacrifice for forgiveness... Your names were not scratched out of the book. They were written in more deeply and darkly and ornately. Just before we were married, 
I noticed that Jennifer would sit down with a page, a blank sheet of paper, and she'd write my name over and over and over again. And she filled up the, the sheet. And just before each of our children were born, she would sit with a blank sheet of paper and write over and over and over again the name of the awaited child. To write the name of a loved one with meaning and feeling, that's the writing of the cross. And Jesus hanging on the cross is inscribing your name on the pages of God's eternal affections. But here's the height of his dissatisfaction for our idolatry. He's not just the visiting God, not just the blotting out God. He goes one step further and he makes himself the consuming God. That's what he spoke of, consuming his people. But there are two ways for him to consume his people. The first is the obvious one, the expected one, like a wildfire of judgment that looks up every scrap and soul in its way and leaves nothing behind, not even a residue. But the other way to consume his people is like a wind, a spirit, a new heart that overtakes us. Instead of coming down the mountain in a firestorm, God came down the mountain having written himself on stone tablets Not so that we could follow his law externally and mechanically and robotically, but so that we could ingest the beauty of his holiness and be changed by it. And that's what it means that God relents in verse 14. He turned away from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. That doesn't mean he changed his mind or his heart On the matter, his heart was always the same towards sin, and it was always the same for his people. That's why he blotted out a Savior and not sinners. But what it means is, his course of action changed, and it stayed in perfect keeping with his character. Instead of consuming us with judgment, he's determined to consume us with grace, and with holiness, and with love, and with his own likeness. So Moses takes the idol in verse 20 and the passage says he melted it and he ground it into powder and he scattered it on water and he scooped it up in bowls and cups and goblets and dishes and he made the people drink it down. He made them ingest the idol. And do you know what happened to them? Nothing. They were not changed at all. That idol was voided. It passed through them and it was left in latrine pits all over the desert where it was meant to be all along. But it's very different when our God fills us. Because when he fills us, it's not a nothingness or an emptiness. It's a sanctifying and a strengthening and a beautification. When he fills us with his word, when he fills us with his spirit, 
When he fills us with his gospel in the life and work of his son, when he fills us with the gospel held out to us in baptism and communion and singing and strong doctrinal substantial prayers, when he fills us with the grace of love that suffers, when he fills us with the grace of forgiveness, when he fills us with his covenant promises and covenant hope, when he fills us with his commandments and the character that bleeds through them, how can we not be changed? That's how he consumes us. And remember, this whole ordeal started because Moses went up the mountain and he was consumed with this God and the people didn't like it. But the verdict at the end of the story is nothing has changed. I will not give you to your idols. You do not belong to them. You're mine. And I will consume you with my love and my peace. If idolatry is our surprising dissatisfaction with God... Grace is God's surprising dissatisfaction with our idolatry. And the gospel of the golden calf is this. His dissatisfaction becomes our dissatisfaction. Instead of being dissatisfied at Him and toward Him, we're made dissatisfied like Him and with Him. And here's what it looks like. Here's what it feels like. You can see it in Moses. Moses comes down the mountain and he finds the people worshiping the idol. And verse 19 says, Moses' anger burned hot. He was enraged at it. What Moses was reacting to was the ugliness of the calf, which is odd. It was a golden calf. It must have been resplendent. But it was ugly because it looked nothing like the God of grace. If only we could see our idols like that. Listen to these opening paragraphs from the novel Son of Laughter based on the life of Jacob, the biblical patriarch. Listen as I read for the grotesqueness and the mawkishness of idols. And by the way, it's supposed to be unsettling. You're supposed to squirm a little bit here. They all had names, but I've forgotten them. One name sounded like a man hocking up a bone. And another went, Lou, Lou, like a man with a woman under him. And another rattled like the god of a tree. One name was so tiny and dry, you hardly dared speak it for fear it would crumble the dust on your lips. They were no taller than from my wrist to the tip of my middle finger. They lived on a shelf in my uncle's cellar. My uncle is Laban. And the cellar walls are of earth. It's always black down there, even when the sun is high. And one of the idols was a bearded child in a high-peaked cap. Another wore a skirt of fish scales with plump toes and a round full belly. Another was bald and beardless. He held his member out before him in both hands. He had no eyes and only a crack in the stone for his mouth. They told my uncle many things that he lusted to know. They told him where to look for the missing goat or the strayed lamb. They told him 
where to plant and when and where in the city of Haran to buy for least and sell for most. They told him about rain, and I've seen him come lurching up the ladder, so drunk on their secrets that his eyes were rolling around in his head and his jaw was hanging. The funny thing is, our idols are no more refined or pretty than that. And yet we treat them as if they're strikingly beautiful. And we don't even put ours in the cellar. We set them up prominently in the middle of our lives. We build our lives around them. We build cities around them and cultures and subcultures. But if we could only walk through our lives and see the ugliness and crassness of our idols, how unlike our beautiful God they are, then we would burn with anger at them. And that's an appropriate emotion. But it's not the final emotion. You can't stop there because Moses doesn't stop there. Moses climbed the mountain again and he went to get the people atonement. He went to get God's atonement for the people. Anger is always answered with the good news of atonement. And listen to Moses. He's so overcome with emotion, he can't even finish his sentence in verse 32. If you will forgive, and then he breaks off choking on his sobs. But if you won't, then blot me out. It isn't worth living. It's not worth living at all if we can't have your forgiveness. But the start of this holy dissatisfaction, the start of our sharing God's dissatisfaction, doesn't start with anger or seeking atonement. It starts out much more simply. It starts with being able to say and mean Moses' six words of confession in verse 30. I've sinned a great sin. Oh, when you say that, atonement comes like a flood of mercy. Our hearts turn away from our idols when we can stop making excuses for them. When we can stop pretending they're not that bad. We stop pleading for them and protecting them. When we stop trying to make them sound and seem so normal and reasonable and logical. When we stop thinking we can establish an uneasy peace with them. We can live with them and manage them. But our dissatisfaction begins when we say of them truthfully, I've sinned a great sin. And this idol wants to keep me from my God. And my Savior wants to take me away from this idol. And I agree from, with my Savior. I want to be taken from this idol. I agree with Him. I want to be removed from this idol. If you're with us this morning and you're a skeptic, you're not at all a regular worshiper or one who would say that you're a follower of Christ. In fact, you might even openly call yourself a critic of Jesus and the church. There's still a sermon in all of this for you. And here it is, very simple. Everyone has a God. You might never have thought that, but you have a God. Here's how you find it. What do you love most? What do you need most? What can you not imagine going without? There's your God. But do you have the right God? Will that thing actually live with you? 
Will that thing wipe out your sin by dying for you? Will that thing make you beautiful by taking the worst parts of you and giving the best, most perfect parts of itself? And if not, do you really want to entrust yourself to that God? Jesus is calling you out of idolatry into his forgiveness and love. And all you have to do is believe and follow him. And I know that's an overwhelming statement. So let me put it this way. You don't have to do it alone. Believe and follow him with us. We'll help. Just ask. We're happy to help. One Sunday, I'd love to see us all come together here at the theater dragging sacks behind us. Big cloth bags loaded down. The kind that are so full that you have to sort of labor across the parking lot to get them up to the door. And then you have to maneuver them and squeeze them through the front doors. The way I picture it, I see us coming in and settling into seats, setting ourselves up, and then we reach down into the bags between our feet and we pull out all of our false gods, our replacement gods, and we pile them up into the seat with us. They sort of sit in a heaping mound in our laps and they're perched on our shoulders. And then worship starts, and it goes like this. We're singing about love to the true God, but actually our hearts are loving the false gods we've brought with us. But as worship goes on, God proclaims his covenant love for us and his covenant salvation to us. As worship goes on, God proclaims to us his unchanging character and his unchanging beauty and his determination that we should be filled with his beauty. And that we are to belong to Him and Him only. And as worship goes on, He proclaims to us His loving dissatisfaction with our idolatry and His bold reclamation of us through Jesus. And one by one, our little figurines and statuettes break and crumble. And by the end of worship, we're sitting in a heap of dust and joy. I'd love for us to live through that together. I hope someday we'll get to live through that together. And that's the way it's supposed to be every week. In the gospel, our dissatisfaction shifts. And every week we come together, our golden calves are supposed to be ground to powder. And every week we come together, gathered by Jesus brought into his gospel to rejoice in it and to be strengthened and lifted up in it again. Every week, the unchanging heart of Jesus is supposed to beat more strongly with us. Can you feel it? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, Lord Jesus, we ask you to do just that for us. Take all of our idols. We've brought them by the sack load with us. And they're heaped in our laps and perched on our shoulders. Mine are standing in rows around my feet. And in the power of your redeeming love, 
grind them to powder and dust and deliver us from them. These idols want to take us away from you and you won't have it. You mean to take us away from them and turn our hearts so that our dissatisfaction is no longer aimed at our gracious, loving God, but our dissatisfaction is brought to be joined to His so that we're not clutching at our idols and giving them up reluctantly, giving them up with a fight, but we are willingly participating with Jesus in their destruction. What a God we have that idolatry is such a sin because we don't need any other gods. Our God has no counterpart and he needs no help. Ah, oh, for more belief to trust and rely and depend upon you and that you'll give to us this we will know what it is to be restored and remade and healed. Grant it, and we will give you thanks. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.